0: Be seated. Good morning. My name is Ashley. My husband Scotty and I are the newest members of Redeemer. I'll be reading scripture this morning from Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. or what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until, this, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Thank you, Ashley. Good morning. Uh, My name is Tanner House. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. Thank you so much for being here. If you're a guest, uh, would you take a moment and fill out the connect card that is under your table? Um, We would love to be able to figure out how this music stand works. Uh, We'd love to be able to figure out how to uh, connect with you, how to serve you. Um, how we as a church could get you plugged into the life of the body uh, If you're new, also we use the ESV If you need a Bible, there's some on the back of the, on the communion tables You can raise your hand and my friend Rodney will bring you one if you need one um, And we're just really thankful that you're here this morning So I don't know if you've all heard or not, but there's this virus going around um, And so without getting all political about it I want to say this one of the long-term effects of the pandemic seems to be the way that each different state is handling labor and unemployment and things like that and I hadn't really given it much thought because of Texas but up until the last few weeks it hasn't really had any effect on on me like I haven't had to think about the effects personally Uh, But I've noticed in two areas of my life a disruption because of what's going on in other places. The other day, I really wanted some chicken wings. Uh, Kendra, my wife, she has this really amazing, healthy, whole 30 chicken wing recipe. So I went to HEB on 42nd, and they didn't have the ones I wanted because I want the portions, not the whole wing, it's a whole production. Anyways, the West Side HEB had the ones I wanted, but you could only buy like one or two packages per customer, and everyone in my family at that moment became a customer, like each one of my kids was setting their two packages of chicken wings on the, because I got four kids, man, it takes a lot of wings to feed us, but I went out there last week, and they were out, it's like the whole world is experiencing a worldwide chicken wing shortage because I actually saw a commercial on TV uh, for Wingstop. I mean, it's literally in their name. And they were advertising that they've switched to Tenders because of the shortage. So if anyone wants to go to Tender Stop after church for lunch, we can, we can do that. So that, that's available. Here's another area. And here's one that's going to create a lot of problems for us in society and honestly reveal a lot about what our culture values. Christmas is coming, and in my house, we've already received, you know, the ad magazines. You know, back, if you're old enough to remember, my dad was telling me yesterday they used to get this 7,000-page-long Sears catalog. Well, now they come in, like, five-page increments from Target and everywhere else but my kids have already gone through them circled what they wanted each of them had their own color so everything's color-coded and their grandparents are already asking for their Christmas list so they can like start buying stuff early and if this thing is real and not an attempt to get consumers to spend money impulsively there may be a lot of disappointed kids on Christmas morning when Princess Unicorn is not under the tree It's created a lot of, like, interesting teachable moments in my house. Like, we get to talk about the differences between wants and needs. Like, Levi, you need new clothes because you're growing at an alarming rate. You don't, however, need another Nerf gun to shoot me with or another Lego set for me to step on. You do need food. You want toys. All right, you see the difference? One keeps you alive and one keeps you entertained for a little bit one is good for your body and the other one ends up at goodwill in a few years so it's been interesting it will probably always be a challenge for us to balance, balancing teaching our kids the difference between wants and needs because as adults most of us haven't even figured this out yet uh, there's an important difference between just because we can doesn't mean that we should Those moments in life, like I want my kids to want things. I want them to have healthy desires. I don't want them to feel entitled to make certain demands of me or others and then have their expectations just go completely unmet because that's not real life. I want them first and foremost to learn how to follow Jesus and submit to his will for their lives. Uh, I want them to learn for their desires to be his desires And it's difficult as believers to learn that lesson. It's difficult to learn to die to our wants and desires and submit our wills to the authority of God and Scripture and His perfect will for our lives. Because again, let me remind you, if you've been with us, the purpose of our Christian walk is not us primarily. It's not what we want and what we can get out of it. It is Christ and it is His glory It's his excellence, his majesty, his honor, his praise. And to quote one of my heroes, John Piper, Christ is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied and content in him. So in our text today, I want us to have an encounter with the Savior and Messiah that we all need. No matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, like you need to hear from the Lord this morning. If you're just checking out this Jesus guy or if you've been walking with Christ for years and years and years, or you're somewhere in between on that spectrum, you need to be reminded, maybe you need to recognize for the first time exactly who this Savior is. This Savior, this Messiah, He isn't always the Messiah we expect. Culturally speaking, He isn't always the Messiah that we want, but He is always what we need. I just want to call you, church, one more time to consider the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want to invite you, if you're a believer this morning, to consider, does any of this have any bearing on my life? In our text today, Jesus is giving us a clear calling as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as you sit... And as you listen to the text today, I'd invite you to consider if, in fact, you are a true follower of Jesus or if just maybe you are just a cultural Christian. I'd invite you to pray that God would reveal sin and unbelief to you, maybe even for the first time. That's just, there's a lot at stake for us, church, this morning in how we respond to this text. So let's pray, and we're going to get to work. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, show us our need for you. Lord, I pray that you would do a lot of work in the hearts of men and women and kids in this room this morning, Lord, that you would root out unbelief, Lord, that you would root out any pretense, Lord, that you would root out any false sense of security that isn't found in you. Lord, for the believer this morning, I pray for some deep assurance, Lord, and for the wayward and the wandering, I pray for conviction. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 31 it says and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after 3 days rise again verse 32 at the beginning it says and he said this plainly So just by way of review if you've been with us we or if you're new, either one. We've been walking through the gospel according to Mark all year. And so just so we're on the same page, last week after Jesus and his disciples returned from their Galilean Gentile region tour, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? What are people saying about me? His, his disciples responded, People are saying that you're John the Baptist or that you're Elijah or that you're one of the prophets. And look, all of these things are are really positive things. Like John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets in the Old Testament, they're all well respected and they're all well thought of. The problem is that these descriptions of Jesus just are not accurate at all. They are not accurate representations of who Jesus is. One commentator, Daniel Akin, says that these may all be efforts to honor Jesus, but they misrepresent him. They applaud him, but they also deny him. So he asked them, so Jesus asked his disciples, what about you? What do you believe about me? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. You will be our Savior. Peter makes the very first public proclamation of Jesus' messianic role and function. But sit tight. Uh, He's still got some learning and growing to do. So our, our text today is actually a continuation of last week's text. After Peter makes this proclamation, Jesus tells them what's about to happen to him. He tells them what his impending fate is. And not only that, he tells them plainly for the first time. This is Jesus' prediction of what is called the passion, meaning his death, his burial, his resurrection. And it has a few important components for us. And I really want us to understand what's taking place here in this exchange. For Jesus to be the Messiah, a few things have to be true. For Jesus to be the the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Man, must suffer. For Jesus to be the Messiah, it is necessary that these things happen. This has been predicted by God through the prophets numerous times in the Old Testament writings. A few that come to mind immediately are are Genesis 3.15, when God tells the serpent that he, the enemy, the devil, Satan, Uh, Satan will bruise the seed of the woman, meaning Satan will bruise the heel of the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus' heel. But the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to crush the serpent's head. Meaning for a second time, or for a second, for a second, meaning for a second, it may appear that Satan is actually going to win. When Christ was laying dead in the tomb, it may have felt hopeless for a moment. But because of the resurrection, Jesus has defeated sin and death and will defeat Satan once and for all when he returns. So there's another one uh, that comes to mind. It's the suffering servant uh, prophecy in Isaiah 53. And I just want to read a little bit of this. Isaiah 53, if you want to flip there in your Bible or write it down uh, to look at later. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 5, talking about the Messiah, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. Amen. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked." And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted Righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he bore the sins of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressor, transgressors. Transgressors. I think it would... Not lose its force, if I could pronounce the word. Make intercession for the transgressors. Man, the Old Testament is full of prophecies about the death and the coming of the Messiah. I've given you two of a few hundred. What we're seeing in this prediction from Jesus is that these prophecies are coming true before the eyes of Jesus' disciples. Who have been taught these things as Jewish boys their whole lives. For us, that means we can trust the scriptures. We can believe that the scriptures are true. They don't contradict themselves. From the beginning of time, this was the plan. We're seeing this play out in our text today. We'll see this play out in the text in the coming weeks. This is the Messiah, the Christ, who died for the sins of many and makes intercession for the wickedness of transgressors. So keeping in mind... Keeping in mind the Jewish nation, including but not limited to these disciples, they are expecting Jesus to come in and redeem them in an earthly and political sense. Not a spiritual redemption first. So Jesus must suffer and die. Jesus must suffer and die, and Jesus isn't predicting that this is going to happen only, but that it was absolutely necessary that it, in fact, must happen. That he actually had to be killed. And one commentator says, not only this, he also had to be subjected to suffering and must be killed because of the Father's will and love for creation. John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that whoever um, that He gave His one and only Son, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life." The Father loves creation, and the Father has a promise to fulfill of reconciling sinful humanity back to himself. Jesus also uh, must be subjected to suffering because the scriptures concerning the Messiah have to be fulfilled. Jesus not only must suffer and die for these reasons, but he must suffer and die so that the resurrection can occur. If Christ does not rise from the dead then Christ is not the Messiah. If Jesus doesn't rise, then Jesus isn't the Messiah. And if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, and if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then we have no hope. We have no hope for an eternity, and we have no hope for a future. So Jesus is giving these guys a lesson in what's called Christology, like the study of Christ. This is the message you're getting. And he looks at the disciples, and he says, hey, dudes, This is the Messiah that you're getting because this is the Messiah that you were promised. And God is faithful to keep his promises to you. All right, pick it up in verse 32. Jesus tells them these things plainly. And here comes Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter, being the bold guy, says what undoubtedly all of the other disciples were thinking. In Matthew's account of the same story, Peter goes to Jesus and he says, Not so, Lord. Far be it from you, Lord. This will not happen to you, Jesus. Peter's nationalism is clouding his view of the scriptures. Some of you who love your political party more than your Bibles, take note of this exchange, please. Jesus rebukes him with the exact same language that he has previously used to cast out demons. By saying, get behind me, this is the modern day equivalent of, dude, get out of my face. Peter, you are looking at your own agenda, not the Lord's. And to quote my friend Devante here, if we are not walking by faith, we're walking blindly. Before we kick around the Apostle Peter too much because it'd be real easy to do Uh, let's not forget that we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends and we also know that Peter after the resurrection of Jesus would become one of the greatest missionaries and church planners the world would ever see but right now he completely misses it and I hope that encourages you you do not have to have this all figured out but you do have to allow the Lord to teach you, and you do have to allow the Lord to grow you. Here's a free one for you. It is never, ever a good idea to rebuke Jesus because Jesus is God. I was waiting, dude. You always give me, thank you. You left me hanging. And what Peter just did was, like, inexcusable. But there's grace for him just like there's grace for you in moments of unbelief from a humanistic point of view what jesus just said is completely unacceptable i mean how could how could jesus who the disciples just affirmed to be the christ how could he be subjected to suffering and how could anyone want to murder jesus from the lord's point of view from god's point of view The cross is absolutely necessary. It was divinely ordained. And so was the reward that would follow, the glorious resurrection of Jesus. But this is such an offensive concept to the disciples that Christ would endure the cross. Peter was unwilling to accept that, like it says in Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood there would be no remission for sins. If you just take this story at like face value, surface value, and only consider that Jesus is talking about his death, without knowing the end of the story and without knowing the purpose of his death, you will miss the point and be just like the disciples. However, Jesus is inviting you to receive his death in faith, knowing that he will rise, and in doing so, complete the purchase with his blood of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue on the face of the earth. So now Jesus, having said all this to the disciples, takes this teaching beyond the twelve. Let's look at the text together. Pick it up in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to, him, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus then makes this really personal for those in kind of the immediate hearing. Jesus is saying that what is true for him must also be true for his followers. The cross leads to glory. There is no glory without the cross. So first, I think we need to understand what the cross is briefly. Uh, A a cross is two railroad ties, essentially, that are tied together to make a T. It was developed by the Romans and used as a device for torture and execution of criminals in the most humiliating and public fashion. Oftentimes, the people that were condemned to death, they would be nailed to the cross. They were first beaten and scourged first with rods and whips and pieces of flesh would be torn off their bodies. And then the condemned would be stripped naked and tied to the crossbar and forced to carry their cross to the place where they would be executed. And after attaching the two pieces together with the Uh, condemned attached to it. They were then nailed to the very cross they carried and then they were raised up for all to see. It was the most shameful and humiliating way to be executed and this is what a way to Jesus. He was punished for our transgressions. He died in our place in the most humiliating fashion possible and in turn, Christ bore the shame that was yours to bear. And this is what Jesus is calling you to. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus invites you to take up your cross and die to yourself, to deny yourself and follow Jesus. I want to say this before we just fly past it there's a major difference between the humiliation of Jesus. Between the death of Jesus and our call to deny self and die. Jesus' death has atoning value, meaning Jesus' death accomplished redemption. Jesus' death satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus' death was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. We, on the other hand, actually deserve death. We deserve God's wrath, but God's grace through the blood of Jesus means that we now can have access to the Father. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus put death to death by becoming death. (laughs) There you are. And because of that, now we can follow Jesus. But what does that look like? When Christ calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, what exactly is it that he's calling you to? Jesus in our text invites the crowd along with his disciples together for this discussion. So this means for us that he's also inviting us to be a part of this conversation as well. This is a charge from Jesus, and this charge from Jesus is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Jesus is inviting all to consider the cost. Jesus is inviting all to count the cost of discipleship. So what does it mean to follow Jesus according to Jesus and according to the scriptures? Let's take this statement by statement. Jesus first says, let him deny himself. For our purposes, I'll just say deny yourself. Meaning this. You must say goodbye to your old self. Jesus and his word are calling you to put your old self to death. It is more than just going without something. It isn't self rejection or self hatred, it's more than trying to stop doing a particular sin. Denying self means that you are renouncing yourself as the ruler of your own life. You are giving up whatever reliance you have on yourself, you are giving up all efforts to save yourself. Giving up all efforts to just try to be good enough to earn God's love. Denying ourselves in this way leads to finding life in him. Faith in him leads to justification. Meaning faith in him means that we can be declared righteous through faith in Christ. And when we deny ourselves, Christ becomes the treasure of our existence. And we have assurance that Jesus has redeemed us. Denying of self rejects, like, religiosity and box-checking and completely changes our motives and desires. Denying of self says, I am not the most important person in this world. Denying of self makes Christ the object of our affections. We care about Christ, and then we care about his glory, his excellence, his majesty, his honor, his praise, and we're no longer motivated by trying to elevate ourselves. We seek to fight sin, we seek to put it to death, and when we sin, we confess and we repent and not try to justify ourselves before God and others. We replace our will, God replaces our will, our wants, our desires, our perceived needs with His because God has changed our hearts. We treasure God's good and perfect will for our life. It's a willingness to give up everything dear in this life for the sake of following Christ. The apostle Paul says in Philippians 3:7, "But whatever gain I had, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ." So that's denying yourself. Then Jesus says, "Let him take up his cross." So take up your cross. One commentator says, "If the Messiah must suffer, so must his followers." A few moments ago, we talked about the cross. The the condemned person would carry their cross under duress. And Jesus Christ did so willingly. And so do the disciples of Jesus. We follow Jesus. And if we believe what Jesus says about following him, Jesus says, in this life, Christian, you will have trouble. Followers of Jesus will have struggle, but then Jesus says, take heart for I have overcome the world. When we follow Christ, listen to me, some of you need to hear this. When we follow Christ, we were never promised an easy, struggle-free existence. We were promised persecution and we were promised hardship in the name of Jesus. I want to take this further, just a little further. There's a faith system known as the prosperity gospel that that teaches that faith in Christ ultimately leads to a struggle-free, consequence-free, blessed existence. If you're sick in this theological wasteland, you are outside the will of God. If you're praying about something specifically healing or for you or for someone else and it's not happening, in this theological perspective, it would mean that you don't have enough faith. That is so contrary to the word of God. We do believe in healing. Doesn't mean that Christ is required to give that to us. Consider this. All of Jesus' closest followers, the 12 disciples or the 11 disciples, they would all die really horrific deaths as martyrs for the sake of following Christ. So, I want to submit to you this. If you are sick or if you're struggling in life to one degree or another, Christ is not upset with you. If you're struggling and you're walking with Christ, Christ may be trying to increase your faith. Christ may be trying to increase your dependency on him. Christ may be trying to increase your love and devotion for him. And when we struggle as Christians, we are actually identifying with the cross of Christ. You will struggle as Christians. That is actually promised. Honestly, I'd be more concerned if you never, ever struggled for the sake of following Jesus. In the West, this is such a hard concept to grasp because we really do want it easy But the way of Jesus is a call to come and die so that you may live. If you are a Christian, you will endure hardship and it may look like this. People may not want to listen to your your gospel witness. You may be mocked for your faith. But take comfort. Christ rewards faithful service to him. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? If not... You may not really be following Jesus. You may not be following Jesus to the fullest extent that he's calling you to. And so Jesus ends his teaching with this. Follow me. This is not a one-time decision. This is a continual following of Jesus. This means trusting in him, walking in his footsteps in dependency to the Father, obeying his commands, and all of this takes place out of gratitude for the salvation that you have received that you did not deserve through the death of jesus moment by moment by moment man if you want to know if you're truly a believer in christ let me ask you this are you characterized by loving jesus more than yourself are you characterized by loving others more than yourself Are you willing to suffer for the sake of following Christ? Are you willing to follow Jesus in the way that he commands you to? Look, none of this happens in your own power. Conversion and sanctification, meaning the process of becoming more and more like Christ, are only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. There is a human responsibility, yes, but when Christ calls you into salvation, you are not left to your own resources to figure it out on your own. When Christ calls you into salvation, you have been given the gift of the promised Holy Spirit to equip you for ministry, to convict you of sin, to enable and empower you. Otherwise, because of how wicked your heart is, you would never ever choose to follow Christ on your own. And you would never, ever be able to follow him without the Holy Spirit. All right, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Do you want to know if you... You really want to save your life? Look at where your time goes. Look at where your money goes. Look at the things that make you angry. Look at the things that you value. Look at your relationships. One of my uh, pastoral heroes that I've already quoted once today is a guy named John Piper. And 25 years ago or so at an event called Passion John Piper preaches this sermon in a, in a rainy field to a group of college students. And the sermon is titled, Don't Waste Your Life. He spoke about this article that he had read about this couple that really lived the American dream. They retired early, they bought a nice oceanfront property, and then they spent all of their days collecting seashells on the seashore, like Sally. Um, one day, we will all stand before the Lord... And give an account with what we did with the one life that we have. And you know what I don't want to be true in my own life? Jesus, look at my seashell collection. Jesus, look at all this cool stuff that I accumulated. Jesus, I knew a bunch of facts about you because I went to the Bible or went to church sometimes and we read the Bible in Sunday school. Just to avoid any confusion, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't set some retirement goals and save and invest and leave an inheritance for your kids. What I am saying is that your life should matter, and it should make an impact for the kingdom. Like, if you're a believer, you should want to impact the kingdom. Not just building your own little kingdom uh, of your own vanity. It's cool for you to work hard and retire comfortably and then be generous and support gospel works with your money and be meaningfully connected to Christ and His church. But when you are only motivated by yourself, your soul gets more narrow and more narrow and you become more selfish over time and eventually you forfeit your eternity. On the other hand, if you give up your life if you lose your life for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel, in complete devotion to Jesus, to the service of Jesus His bride, the church, those in need, there is life abundantly. Because of the nature and character of Jesus, because Jesus is God, and if you are in Christ, he has the absolute right and authority to lay claim of your life to such absolute devotion. The adverse is rejection. Verse 38, and and we'll be done. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. To be ashamed of Jesus could look like a number of things, but for our purposes I'll say this. It is to be so prideful that Christ's words, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection have no transforming effect on your life. To be ashamed of Jesus is this. You may know a bunch of facts about Jesus. You may know all of the right answers, but your life looks nothing like what he's calling you to. To be ashamed of Jesus is this. You hear about Jesus, but you flat do not care. And you reject Jesus. Look, if you're in any of these three categories, there's still hope and grace for you. Christ is calling you out of unbelief. Man, if you're feeling guilty this morning, maybe it's conviction from the Holy Spirit that you need to repent. And you need to believe in the God of the Bible. Maybe Christ is calling you into salvation this morning. Do you believe that the cross of Jesus is better than your own wants, your own passions and pursuits, and that following Christ is worth giving up your life for? Man, if the answer is yes, then turn to Jesus and repent and believe. Man, if the answer is no... If the answer is, I don't want to follow Jesus if it involves suffering, you may think you're good with the Lord. And I want to gently submit that that may not, in fact, be the case. Think about your life for a minute. If you claim to be a Christian, is there anything in your life that would suggest that you follow Jesus? Is your lifestyle indicative of, Of Christ being your greatest treasure? Is your private life characterized by the fact that you take sin seriously? Are your unbelieving friends hearing the gospel from you or seeing the gospel lived out in you? Do you live like Romans 1.16 is true? It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Man, do you believe that God is powerful enough to save you? Yes, even you. With all of the stuff you've done and all of the stuff you are currently doing, do you believe that Jesus is willing to save you? Yes, even you. Consider the cross. God in his mercy has provided a way for you to be reconciled to himself. Through the resurrection, Jesus declares that sin and death has been defeated in and through him. You are loved and wanted. Sinner, come to the cross. Come to Christ in faith and dependency. Lose your life and save your soul. Let's pray.